Last time we took a look at the what's commonly known as the seven last words, we took a look at the first three of those statements. This week we'll be taking a look at the final four statements that he makes on the cross. Starting with Mark chapter 15, verse 33, we're going to be going back and forth between the Gospels. It says, when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. So from about noon till about three o'clock during his crucifixion, there was darkness. Some people try to explain this darkness by saying that maybe it was an eclipse, which is not probably possible because it's during a full moon. That's when Passover happens. Others say, well, perhaps it was some type of desert storm that blocked out the sun. People always look for a natural explanation for when God does miraculous things. And just as the heavens declare the glory of the Lord, and just as Romans tells us that the creation groans waiting for its redemption, I believe the universe, especially at least our solar system, is having an impact by this crucifixion. And so it is a supernatural event, God demonstrating what is happening. Verse 34 says, And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, laba sambachthani which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I've heard a number of impactful sermons, and I've read a number of commentaries, and you know me. Just because it is the majority opinion doesn't necessarily make it mine. The majority opinion will say, well, what's happening here is Jesus is feeling abandoned. Jesus is feeling forsaken. Jesus is feeling deserted. Because God cannot look on sin and therefore has turned his back. Well, if that's the case, if God cannot look on sin, then where was he in the the garden with Adam and Eve? He was there. Where was he with King David? He was there. Where was he when you and I sinned? He is there. The point is, is that he is a forgiver of sins. He is a merciful. Yes, he is a God of wrath when it comes to sin. But I do not believe that this is why Jesus is feeling forsaken, because God is somehow no longer looking at him. Now, first, I want you to make abundantly clear that Jesus was and is and always will be God. He was also born of a Virgin Mary, so he became human. I think there's something a little more subtle going on here because we miss it because we don't practice animal sacrifices any longer, fortunately because of Jesus. But during animal sacrifices, what would happen would be the person presenting the lamb for sacrifice would lay his hands on the lamb to identify with it, in essence, to communicate that what I have done, you are going to bear. Well, God didn't do anything wrong. So he no longer needs to lay his hands on Jesus because he's not identifying with sin. He's perfect. But Jesus in his humanity will take upon us our sins. 
And while I'm not smart enough to know, I do know that there, there is one God in three persons. We call it the Trinity. But every time we try to explain the Trinity, we become heretics. So I'm not going to try to explain how Jesus in his humanity and yet Godness is feeling isolated, abandoned, forsaken by God. But he is. He's saying this because he's experiencing it. There is this some type of separation. But it's not because, in my humble opinion, because the Father can't look on sin. Because if the Father couldn't look on sin, then we'd all be in trouble. But he's also saying this for another reason. Not only is he experiencing it, but rabbis and those who are very familiar with scriptures would often say the first verse of a, of a psalm or certain things so that people would say, aha, I know what you're talking about, and then would recite the remaining. Well, the first verse of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is Psalm 22. As I've shared with you, Psalm 22 is from Jesus' perspective, the crucifixion. And so Jesus is saying, I am the one who is dying according to the scriptures. I am experiencing this forsakenness that I can't explain other than I don't think it's God turning his back on Jesus. And yet, Jesus is saying, if you pay attention to the scriptures, not only has my life demonstrated that I am the Messiah, but here on the cross, I am demonstrating that I am the Messiah, that I have done what I have taught. I taught forgiveness. I forgave. I promised eternal life. I'm giving it to the thief on the cross. I care more about others and my mother to make sure that she's provided for than myself in a time of need. We see that Jesus on the cross lived out what he taught. And now he's saying, I'm the Messiah. I know the circumstances don't look right because I'm hanging on a tree, which then says that I'm accursed. But if you read the rest of what I'm saying in Psalm 22, you'll see what is happening is what is happening. But, you know, people are always like people. We don't ever quite get it. And so rather than the people who are standing around Jesus watching this crucifixion, thinking that he is citing and reciting the 22nd Psalm, their response is this, in verse 35. When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he is calling for Elijah. Eloi, my God, turns into, apparently, Elijah. So he's calling out for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it a, him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah, Elijah will come to take him down. Well, they've already been saying, Well, if you are the Son of God, then come down. So now there's, they're diverting this. Well, maybe Elijah will bring him down rather than hearing what Jesus is saying, but which has been typical for all the religious leaders, the entire ministry of Jesus. Misinterpreted almost intentionally what he says. And the rest of us misinterpret it unintentionally. We're just foggy. John 19, verse 28 says, 
After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture said, I am thirsty. Now, Jesus is quoting and causing people to remember Psalm 69, 21, when in essence, the Messiah will say, I am thirsty. And what is going to happen is what that Psalm says. So in verse 29, a jar full of sour wine was standing there so that they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. And so the scriptures is Jesus saying, I'm thirsty. Which, again, I believe he means because he has been scourged, he has been bleeding, he has been nailed to a cross, he has lost a lot of blood, so therefore he's going to be thirsty. He's going to say these things, but he says these things not to check off scripture. And so many people kind of have this idea of, well, Jesus does this because the word of God said that. It's the other way around. The prophets foresaw what Jesus was going to do and be. Jesus on the cross, they saw him say, I am thirsty. And they saw people responding by putting sour wine and giving it to him. As a result, Jesus said these things, and yes, it confirms the scripture, but Jesus said these things not to confirm the scripture. Jesus said these things, which confirmed the scripture, because the scripture said these things were going to happen. So it's Jesus not doing the things to tick off. The prophets are being proved right by what Jesus does. Now, I think that there's two reasons why Jesus has said, I am, well, there's three reasons. I think he says, I am thirsty because he's thirsty. I think he says, I'm thirsty because the scriptures say he's going to say he's thirsty. And I think he says, I'm thirsty because of what he's going to do in the next statements. You see, when your mouth is dry, and I know that's why I drink water, when your mouth is dry, sometimes your words kind of get a little messed up. And so he's going to want to make sure that he enunciates properly, especially since he obviously misunderstood Eloi to Elijah. So he gets his mouth wet so that he can speak. Therefore, when Jesus had received this sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, John compacts everything together. There's another statement that Jesus makes before he passed away. But John tells us two things. He tells us, Jesus' statement is, it is finished, which means his ministry, his mission is accomplished. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. For anyone who says, I've got to add something to Jesus' sacrifice, denies that it is finished. Jesus is only partially done if I have to do something in order to obtain my salvation. But Jesus says, it is finished. The work is complete. All you need is faith in me. Receive eternal life. And yet there are those who teach in both what are proclaimed to be Christian churches and other denominations 
that you either need to be baptized or you need to flog yourself or you need to go through certain kinds of penance and do all these things in order to make up for what Jesus lacked. And Jesus said, it is finished. It is accomplished. He's done. We are saved by having faith in him. It is by faith alone. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is done. It is finished. And then John tells us that he bows his head and gives up his spirit, which tells us that no one took Jesus' life. He gave it. He didn't die on a cross because the cross kills him. He gave up his life again to be that ransom for many. And then Luke 23, 46 tells us this. And this is why I think that Jesus needed that extra liquid. And Jesus crying out with a loud voice. Now, again, you've got to remember the way a person dies on a cross is by asphyxiation. They don't have enough air. So this is very unusual for someone who is dying on a cross whose last words are going to be these to cry out. It's usually a muffle, a whimper, whisper. But Jesus cries out with a loud voice and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Again, he quotes a psalm usually used as an evening prayer, saying, I have accomplished what you sent me to do. I have finished the ministry. I have given my life as a ransom. Now I trust to give you my spirit. I am confident that I can commit my spirit into your hands. And having said this, he breathed his last. Again, it is amazing what Jesus has done for us. It's also amazing that the gospel writers do not make a bigger deal out of it. Again, there is no sense of trying to impact our emotions or trying to manipulate us. They give us just the facts. They tell us where the scriptures have been fulfilled. They tell us what Jesus did and what he experienced and the happenings around it. They don't make it gory. Movies do, but the scriptures don't. Because the scriptures don't attempt to manipulate us. It attempts to bring us to faith. Going back to Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, after Jesus having said it is finished and after having committed his spirit to the the Father, it says, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. The scriptures are going to tell us a number of things that are going to happen as a result of Jesus' death. The first is that the temple veil, the veil that is going to separate the holy place from the holy of holy is going to be ripped, not from the bottom up so that it's not human agency, but it is heavenly agency that is ripping the 
veil from top to bottom. Now, this wasn't just a small little cloth. This was woven together fabric that was thick. So it wasn't, it wore out. It wasn't a defect in the material. It was because of a heavenly tearing from the top to the bottom, which theologically tells us this. Before Jesus' death, the scripture said, in order to go into the place where God resided, the holy of holies, that only the high priest once a year could go in twice. He'd go in once with the blood to present an atonement for himself and place the blood on the mercy seat, and then come again and place the blood on behalf of the people in atonement for their sins. But they could only be there once a year on the Day of Atonement. And the, the chief priests and the people were so concerned that God would not accept that, that they would tie a rope around him in bells so that if God didn't accept the atonement, he'd strike the high, high priest dead. And you, obviously, you can't touch a dead body and it's going to smell after a year. You just drag it out because no one else is allowed to go in. So that if they stop hearing the bells, they drag them out. The scriptures are now telling us, as Hebrews will declare, that now that we can enter boldly into the throne room and find grace and help in time of need. And so because of Jesus' death, we have access to God, not by some priest, but on our own, not in fear, but in boldness. But that's not all that happened when Jesus died. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. There was an earthquake. There were things happening. The earth was violently shook so much so that rocks broke in two. Now, those of us who live in Southern California kind of experienced earthquakes. Have a little bit of. Others who don't, who don't experience earthquakes are especially fearful. Now, some people in Southern California are pretty fearful. But it's, you know, when you experience it, it kind of rocks back and forth. And, you know, if you have a pool, the water splashes around. And it lasts for about a, you know, 20 seconds or more. And we get over it. People have never experienced it. Are definitely afraid of it. We don't experience tornadoes. I mean, I'd be more concerned about that. But this earthquake is so violent that rocks are split in two. But that's all that happened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after the resurrection, they entered into the holy city and appeared to many. So what this is saying is not saying, oh, they rose from the dead and they hung out in the tomb until three days later. They didn't declare themselves in the holy city until after Jesus' resurrection. But there were seismic events happening both physically and spiritually. That Jesus is going to declare in a few days that he is the first fruit 
of resurrection. And because of this, and because of these events, and because of this seismic activity, verse 54 says, and now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened. And you and I would be too. Because they are considering themselves responsible for the death of this man. Now, as I said, we're all responsible for his death. But they were the tools to accomplish it. And they became very frightened and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Isn't it interesting? During a period of time when faith could seem least likely to happen, is when faith is happening. The thief on the cross came to faith while seeing Jesus being crucified. After Jesus has rendered up his spirit, the centurion and those who were responsible for Jesus' crucifixion declared, truly, this was the Son of God. And many men, women were looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee and ministering to him. So these women had stayed throughout from the time he was nailed to that cross until he breathed his last. They stayed because of their love for him. Turning to John 19, verse 31. Then the Jews, because it was a day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. I want to stop there. I want you to understand a couple of things. Usually it took a long time for people to die on the cross. Even after they were dead, Rome allowed the people to stay on the cross because they wanted to be a sign for those who had the temerity to rebel against Rome would see what would happen if you dared challenge their authority. So not only would they allow them to hang there until dead, they would allow them to hang, hang, hang there after their death, so much so that even the birds would come and peck at their bodies and strip them. But because this is the next day is Passover, and that's where there is a problem with tradition, and we're going to talk about that next week. Passover is a Sabbath. They don't want the bodies hanging on the Sabbath because that would defile the Sabbath. A high Sabbath, not a Saturday Sabbath, a Passover Sabbath. And because of that, they wanted them dead 
now, and remove. And the way you see that somebody dies on a cross, if they're not dead yet, is to break their legs. Well, why would you break their legs? Because the way you die on a cross is, as I explained before, they would nail your feet you would, with a little bit of room, and then you would push yourself up, which would allow you to breathe. And when you ran out of energy and strength, you would sag down, which no, you said no longer could breathe. And then when you, your body would cry out for more air, it, you would muscle back up and breathe. Well, if your legs are broken, you can't muscle back up. Plus, it's got to be extremely painful. I mean, you're already dying on a cross, and now they're going to hit your legs hard enough to break them. And after that, you die. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. So the one thief who was not his legs were broken, he died. The other thief who became a believer, his legs were broken, and Jesus' statement to him, today you will be with me in paradise, becomes a reality. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. They didn't break his legs because he was already dead. Now, I want you to understand a couple of things. The Roman soldiers who had crucifixion detail were very familiar with dead bodies. They could observe Jesus and know that he was dead. He didn't swoon. He wasn't asleep. He wasn't in a coma. He was dead. The guards and the centurion and those responsible for his crucifixion made sure that he was dead because that was their job. To not do their job properly would cause them to perhaps be placed on a cross. So number one, they're going to want to make sure he's dead. They testify to the fact that he's dead. Number two, the scriptures tell us that the Messiah will not have broken bones. No, we frequently say when things are crazy, well, God is in control. Well, God is in control. You see, for instance, when Jesus said, I thirst, and people say, well, he's just saying that to fulfill the scriptures. Well, the second part required somebody else's action that they bring sour wine, and give it to him. Jesus might be able to, if he weren't God, manipulate the one part. He can't manipulate the giving of the sour wine. He can manipulate dying, but he can't manipulate what the soldiers might do to his body. But God is in control. And God says the Messiah will not have broken bones. He will know who he is. Because of that. As the scripture says, he died according to the scripture. There's an antichrist who's come, and he's going to suffer a mortal wound to his head 
and he'll recover. And he, the Antichrist, will have that happen according to the scriptures. But it's different from the Messiah. But one of the soldiers, verse 34, pierced his side with a spear. So he knows I'm not taking any chances. Because I don't want to be in his spot. So he takes his spear and shoves it up into Jesus' side. And it says, and immediately blood and water came out. Now, I'm not a physician, and I can make another joke, but I won't. But I have heard it said from physician that when you see blood and water coming from a wound, that means the heart ruptured. If Jesus' heart ruptured as a human being, he's dead. So when you hear all these people talk about, well, they put him in a tomb and he was just swooned and whatever. Nothing of the evidence suggests anything other than he died. And he died for you and for me. And he died according to the scriptures. And he died because the Father was pleased to pierce him and to crush him. And we know by implication that not only were the women there, but his disciples were there as well. How do I know? Because in a few days, Thomas is going to say, you're telling me that this Jesus rose from the dead. I don't believe you because I was there. I saw nails in his hands and his feet. And I saw that soldier pierce his side. And unless I see those wounds, I won't believe. So there's testimony by Rome, by the women, and by his disciples. He died. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's God's love. That's the Father's love. That's the Son's love and obedience that he did what he did, you and me. Now, unless we start getting, thinking too much of ourselves, He didn't die for us because we're lovable. He didn't die for us because we're something special. He died for us because he's special. Because he's God. Because he is love. He doesn't just love. He is love. And he demonstrated his love towards us. And while we were yet sinners, not when we convert, not when we change a new life, Not when we get our act together, but while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The cross shows 
just how much God loved And as the song says, because of that, your sins are cast as far as the east is from the west. From one scarred hand stretched out to another. His love ran red. And all God's people said, Amen.